From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cancer patients are usually prepared to do whatever it takes to battle their disease. But sometimes, in their desperation to beat the cancer, some patients are there an easy mark for companies claiming to have a pill that can cure cancer. We'll hear how the Food and Drug Administration is cracking down on companies offering bogus cancer treatments. Very, very small piece of the iceberg. There's so many things online. People hear about things from their neighbors and they're from their friends. And again, all with good intention, but unfortunately, sometimes these things just do not stack up to the claims that are made for them. Also on the program, we'll discuss an array of common primary care topics. And we'll hear the story of an intricate limb-saving procedure. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, that is the agency that's responsible for policing the American food and drug market, well, they're cracking down on companies that are making bogus cancer treatment claims. And let's face it, there's a lot of them out there. The FDA has actually issued warning letters to 14 different companies that it says are illegally selling more than 65 products that fraudulently claim to prevent, diagnose, treat, or cure cancer. The FDA, in fact, calls it cruel deception. Companies promising desperate consumers that their products can cure cancer. Here to discuss these and other cancer myths is Mayo Clinic oncologist Dr. Timothy Moynihan. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Moynihan. It's good to see you. Great. Thanks for having me, Tracy and Tom. Always appreciate being here. All right, Dr. Moynihan. You know, I think most of us feel that it's about time that the FDA started cracking down on quacks. I absolutely agree. There, there, as you say, there's a lot of things out there. There always has been. For time immemorial, people have sold snake oils and other things to people. And unfortunately, they're selling it for people in desperate situations. So I understand why they want this. They want a simple and easy fix for whatever is wrong with them. But unfortunately, people are doing this fraudulently. And what they're doing, they're transferring money from your pocket to their pocket and not helping you at all. What's one of the worst perpetrators of this that you think that you're glad to hear that the FDA is going to start cracking down? Well, I, I don't know if there's any one worst one we can talk about. There are, there are so many of them, uh, but people clearly are making claims to things that they have no data to, to back up. And this is exactly what the FDA is looking for. Uh, the FDA regulations say that uh, they cannot... Uh, advertise or sell a product for something that which they do not have data to support the, their their claims. If they make false claims, they should not be allowed to sell or make money from that uh, from that particular product. And most of these companies do not have data that su- supports that. What are they claiming to do? I mean, obviously, if you've got cancer, you want to get rid of the cancer, mm-hmm. and so I would imagine they're saying we'll help you get rid of the cancer. Absolutely. So, and and that's a very reasonable thing for somebody with cancer to have. They want to get rid of it. They're willing to do anything they can, and that's perfectly reasonable. What is unreasonable is for somebody to sell something claiming it gets rid of cancer, yet they have no information that it actually does do what it says. So what the FDA wants is they want some type of proof. And what uh, most of the cancer drug manufacturers need to do, they need to run what are called clinical trials to demonstrate that their drug does what they say it does. And what they do is get many people involved in a trial, sometimes in the thousands of patients, sometimes in the hundreds of patients, but they say that uh, X number of people got their drug, and they can show with tests 
that this drug did shrink cancer or made cancer better or sometimes even made cancer go away. Well, if they're making false claims about what their product can do, I don't really trust them to not say, hey, there's been clinical trials that prove our product works. So how can you prove that there actually has been clinical trials completed? Right. And so uh, the FDA also has rules about this and that there has to be monitoring committees that are independent from the uh, manufacturer of the drug. They have no financial ties. They have they do not work for the companies, but they oversee the data, and they get to monitor the data blindly and independently and say, yes, these drugs do uh, meet the claims that the company's making, or no, they do not make meet, meet the claims that the company is making. If they do not re- reach that criteria, then the FDA says you should not be allowed to make money from this or advertise that this does uh, – cures cancer or treats cancer in an appropriate way. The FDA has targeted 14 companies, 65 different products. Is this just the tip of the iceberg? Oh, just a very, very small piece of the iceberg. Absolutely. There's there's a lot more out there. There's so many things online. People hear about things from their neighbors and they're from their friends. And again, all with good intention. But unfortunately, sometimes these things just do not stack up to the claims that are made that they're made for them. Are most of the, the the drugs that they're talking about or the products that they're talking about, these 65, are most of them sold online? Uh, they're they very frequently sold online, and certainly the advent of the Internet has helped to explode this. But certainly these drugs existed for, for many decades, if not centuries, prior to this time, too. It was It's much easier and faster to reach a much larger audience with the Internet than you could before. But remember, in the, in the 1800s, there was the snake oil salesman who would drive his wagon, a covered wagon from town to town and sell, you know, Dr. James's snake oil. This is good for your rheumatism, your cancer, and your emphysema. And it, and, and it turned out to be not much more than alcohol and Sometimes some snakes were actually in there. Oh Alcohol. Yeah. I wonder they felt better. Are there buzzwords <laughs> that uh, consumers should look out for? Is there anything that's a dead giveaway? <clears throat> I think there are, are a couple common sense rules that go a long ways. Okay. And number one, if the claim sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Somebody says one dose of this and absolutely no side effects and you'll be absolutely cured of your disease. That's a pretty difficult pill to swallow. I, I, I just don't believe that's going to happen. Two, if you have to mortgage the house to buy it, I would be very skeptical of that. Okay? I would not trust anybody where I had to sell my soul uh, or you know, sell my child to, to get the It's the so thing. expensive. It's so expensive. I would be very worried about that. But three, if something sounds reasonable to you okay, and doesn't meet those first two criteria and you want to try it, two things. One, go ahead and try it. But discuss it with your physician. Be very open and honest with your physician. Tell them, I'm trying this grapeseed extract, or I'm trying this vitamin C, etc. And because what we want to not have happen is that to interfere with treatments that we do know do work. Okay. Mm-hmm. And most physicians, as long as you're honest with them, they'll be willing to work with you. They'll probably tell you a straight answer. They may tell you they don't know. They may tell you, I have no experience with this. They may tell you, I'm really worried about that drug interacting with my drugs. Uh, or they say, 
this is this is a really harmful product and they, they they will probably be honest with you you know it's really not surprising that people are willing to try things that are out there because the treatments that we have available don't always work chemotherapy absolutely. radiation well and they're and not pleasant either yeah, absolutely yeah and it, it could be the end of the line, and, and your uh, oncologist has said, you know, we've tried every drug, and it, and it hasn't worked, and there's not much more, and there's no experimental trials for you, and it's understandable. Absolutely, and th- these people are in a, in a situation where they just want to get better, and sometimes modern medicine isn't good enough for them. We don't have enough things, so I understand the, the, the desire to pursue those things, um, and uh, again, what I'd really want people to do is is be honest with the people they're working with. Stay with the medicines that, that we know work, even though a lot of times our medicines only work a little bit. Okay, but they can work. Yeah. At a cost, as exactly as Tracy mm-hmm. said, they they do do cause side effects. They do cause hair to fall out. They do cause nausea. We can make people sick with our treatments. What we don't want to do, we don't want to make them more sick because we're adding in some unproven thing that makes things worse. So we just want to be careful with those things. You know, while we're while you're here, I want to ask you one quick question. If there's anything out there available on the Internet or anywhere else that will actually help prevent cancer. I know, you know, it's diet, it's exercise, and we've all heard mm-hmm. that. Anything else? Anything on the market that you would say, you know, that might be worthwhile to take this because it helps prevent cancer? I really wish we had that. Yeah. Okay. And what we do have exactly what you said, a healthy diet, uh, maintaining your weight, Exercise is a good thing. There are some things. Uh, low-dose aspirin may play a significant role in decreasing the risk of future colon cancers or uh, other things. Certainly not harmful. Again, discuss with your doctor. Make sure you don't have a reason to not take aspirin or that aspirin doesn't interfere with some other medicine you're taking for some other purpose. Uh, but there are a few things out there like that. In terms of the over-the-counter things, uh, there's nothing that we know of. Uh, FDA recently talked about the whole multivitamin market that the vast majority of those things really don't do the things they're claimed to do either. And you can probably accomplish the same thing, if not in a better form, by getting a well-balanced diet. All right. Well, that's the key. you got to take care of yourself. <laughs> you need to get good rest. You need to avoid smoking, avoid alcohol in excess. In moderation is probably fine. Uh, control your weight. Try and reduce stress. Stress is terrible in our lives, and it seems like we're getting more and more of that as, uh, as our society gets more electronic. You take time for yourself and try and relax a little bit. All right, Dr. Timothy Moynihan talking to us about bogus cancer treatments. It's time for a short break. When we come back, we're going to sort out myth from fact when it comes to cancer, and we'll start with this one. Myth or matter of fact, high-dose vitamin C is beneficial in treating patients with advanced cancer. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guest is medical oncologist, cancer specialist, Dr. Timothy Moynihan. And in this segment, we're going to separate fact from fiction. And we'll start with the one we mentioned just before the break. Yes, Dr. Moynihan, myth or matter of fact, high-dose vitamin C is beneficial in treatments of patients with advanced cancer. Is that a myth or a fact? Yeah, this is somewhere in between the two. There have been these vitamin C treatments touted for a long time. This dates back to Linus Pauling, who is uh, one of the few two-time Nobel Prize winners, uh, who strongly advocated for this. 
Uh, right now, there are no firm data that so show that vitamin C has a role in fighting cancer. There are many clinics that have been set up to administer high-dose IV vitamin C. And what we know what happens with most of that stuff, you end up passing it out in your urine and feeding the fish with it. Uh, so I, I don't know if that's what you're trying to accomplish. But is that something there, that's being studied? There are some said? studies going okay. on exactly looking at that because in some lab tests, there are some reasons to think that vitamin C might have some beneficial effect against cancer cells. So far in the clinic or in trials in patients, it has not shown to have a, a much of any effect at all. So I, this is one where I'd say stay tuned. Uh, I would not pursue it right now. I have no reason to think it helps. Fortunately, it's a fairly non-toxic therapy, but it could be expensive just because of the uh, cost of going to a place that actually administers it. But I wouldn't have my sister get this. All right, here's another one. One drink of alcohol a day can increase the risk of breast cancer recurrence. So a woman who's had breast cancer, if she has a drink a day, it's more likely that her cancer is going to come back. Recent study. Yeah, this is a recent study. It's actually a very large recent study looking at many, um, actually several million patients in, the, in this study is a population-based study. And it looked like those women who did drink more than one drink a day seem to have a higher risk. this was one drink, I thought. This uh, was just one. So just one. Yeah. Well, one or more per, oh, per day. Okay. So it, it, it had one or more. Oh, okay. So there is Got a caveat it. in there. All right. So we, we do know that alcohol is metabolized to estrogen in uh, women. And this is, se- right? seems to be more common... It, uh, particularly in postmenopausal women. So there seems to be some small association between the alcohol intake and uh, breast cancer risk in women in the postmenopausal setting. Is this an association or is this a causation? We do not know. So does do the alcohol actually cause it or is it just some type of association? Or there's something else in there that we haven't detected yet. Well, wow, that's, that's so interesting mm-hmm. to hear you say that because we know that alcohol is metabolized in the body. But you said in women, part of it ends up as estrogen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it can actually increase the serum estrogen levels to some small degree. Does it make a difference which kind of alcohol it is? No, it probably does not. So I, I think the idea is that modest alcohol intake is probably very safe. There are probably larger factors. Again, getting back to exactly what you've mentioned before, Tom, about exercise, maintaining a healthy weight, a balanced diet are probably more important than the alcohol. Uh, but if, if you're a woman that's worried about breast cancer, I might confine it to two to three uh, drinks per week. No, no more than that. That's probably perfectly safe. If my social media feed is to be believed, sugar feeds cancer. <laughs> is that a myth or is that a fact? Uh, mo- mostly a myth. So uh, as with everything, there's some truth in everything. Basically, every cell in your body runs on glucose. Okay? That's how, how our muscles work. That's how our brain works. That's how our heart works. Everything oh, works that way. That's how our tumors work. That's how our tumors work also. Ah. And there is an effect known as the Warburg effect, and that if we actually starve healthy cells and starve cancer cells, the cancer cells are more likely to die without the presence of sugar around, whereas healthy cells may use other uh, sources of energy to continue to live. Like kale, Dr. Shives. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, again, in, in, in a live living patient, it probably doesn't make any significant effect. Now, if you had a diet that consisted only of Coke and Twinkies, there would be a big problem. Okay? Okay. So that would be a big problem. If you're getting a reasonable, healthy diet, there's nothing wrong with having a few simple sugars, a piece of cake every now and again bowl of ice cream every now and again. Shouldn't be every meal, shouldn't be every time. All right, exposing cancer to the air can make it spread. There's no reason to think that that happens. Uh, Tom, being a surgeon, you know, you know this very well. Uh, we have, have not seen that happen. I think this came about because of in the past, 
people would do an operation to try and treat somebody's cancer, they open the body up and they see it's all over the place. And uh, so uh, it was... It, was it wasn't because the of the air. It was the, it was there already. <laughs> yeah. It was just a surprise finding because they couldn't see it on the previous studies. That's kind of one of the original cancer myths. Yes, I is do that, believe it is. Yes. A cancer surgery will cause the cancer to spread. And there's no reason to think it does. What about um, Dr. Shives mentioned breast cancer? What about antiperspirants and deodorants? Yeah, and there's no link between the use of antiperspirants and development of breast cancer. Again, one from a physiologic mechanism. I don't understand how that would work, but certainly from the epidemiologic data that we have. Those people who use antiperspirants do not seem to get cancer at a higher rate than people who do not use them. All right. Eating meat cooked on the charcoal grill will increase your cancer risk. You're, you're asking this no just way. as it we just start summer. We start yeah. summer and he's getting, getting the grill <laughs> fired up. Uh, we do know that grilling meat, especially uh, where you get the burn on the meat uh, from the, like a charcoal grilling, uh, does create some chemicals that have some cancer-causing properties. In mice. Uh, in mice. <laughs> yeah, so it's in the lab only. And again, if eaten in a modest amount, it's probably very, very safe, and you're probably not harming yourself. So there's no good data to suggest that happens, although some cancer-causing chemicals are generated when you do char meat. So again, in a, in taking it in moderate doses, certainly very reasonable. Don't feed it to your mice. All right. Yeah. Some injuries can cause cancer later in life. So in general, trauma does not cause cancer. The exception to that is when you have a trauma that leads to a chronic non-healing wound. And in that setting, where there's a chronic area of inflammation from a non-healing wound, that can lead to cancer. It's very rare. It's extraordinarily rare. It's almost always confined to that focal area. Uh, But in general, just plain trauma from getting hit, uh, from being tackled in a football game, uh, from uh, a car accident, that will not cause cancer. All right. Some cancers can be contagious. Interestingly, we do not know of that in humans. There has been recently described in Tasmanian devils a transmissible uh, facial tumor that is actually devastating the uh, Tasmanian devil population in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, But that's the only reported case of it. We don't know of that in humans. There are some causes of cancer that are transmissible, particularly as there are several viruses, the human papilloma virus, which can be associated with various uh, head and neck cancers. Uh, cancer of the cervix can also be caused by human papilloma virus. Uh, so there are forms of transmissible cause of virus. Hepatitis uh, B and C certainly can cause lead to liver cancer. So there are many forms of uh, infections that can lead to cancer. But we, we have yet to describe a human cancer that can be transmitted from one person to another. All right, there you go. We have separated myth from fact when it comes to cancer. Dr. Timothy Moy. Cancer Specialist, Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being here. Always a pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll cover an array of primary care topics from ear infections to whooping cough. And later on in the show, the amazing story of a hand replant. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. With your Mayo Clinic Minute, I'm Vivian Williams. Red, itchy skin. Millions get it from ingredients found in skincare products. There are a lot of myths about skincare products. So if you choose a product that actually says hypoallergenic or dermatologist tested, unfortunately, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. So to help people know for sure if skincare products won't irritate their skin, Dr. James Giannis and his team developed a smartphone app called SkinSafe. If you have sensitive skin, skin that's prone to breaking out, look for something that says top free. 
A label of top free means that the product is free of the common causes of skin allergies such as perfumes or preservatives. The top common causes of things that would make your skin turn red, turn rashy, turn itchy. Well, you need to know all the ingredients that are in a product. That's what SkinSafe does for you. You can download the app from the App Store or go to skinsafeproducts.com. And in other news, fruit versus fruit juice. Mayo experts in response to new recommendations that babies under one should not drink fruit juice say they want kids to eat their fruit, not drink it. Mayo Clinic's Dr. Angela Matke supports the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations published in the journal Pediatrics. With rates of childhood obesity and dental health problems increasing, the American Academy of Pediatrics panel decided to revisit the issue of children under one drinking sugary juices. Their recommendations include intake of juice should be limited, toddlers should not be given juice from bottles or easily transportable sippy cups that allow them to consume juice easily throughout the day. The excessive exposure of the teeth to carbohydrates can lead to tooth decay as well. Toddlers should not be given juice at bedtime. Children should be encouraged to eat whole fruits and be educated about the benefits of the fruit as compared with juice, which lacks dietary fiber and may contribute to excessive weight gain. Consumption of unpasteurized juice products should be strongly discouraged for children of all ages, and children who take specific forms of medication should not be given grapefruit juice, which can interfere with the medication's effectiveness. In addition, fruit juice is not appropriate in the treatment of dehydration or management of diarrhea. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, we have said multiple times on this program that when you go to your doctor, probably the two most important things that you want to take with you are a pencil and paper. Um, and be sure that you write down your questions before you go to the doctor. And, of course, it's always a good idea to take someone with you. Absolutely. Preferably a loved one or a friend, because sometimes you don't exactly hear what the doctor is telling you. And a you second can write, set of ears is a good thing. Oh, exactly. But how many times have you gone to the doctor um, and gotten home and said, Ooh, I forgot to ask my doctor that. <laughs> huh? Everybody does that. It I'm happens sure all the time. Yeah, Even exactly. when we're here, it happens to me. Well, you know what? Today, we have family medicine specialist, Dr. Elizabeth Cozine, with us. And we've, you and I, we've come up with a list of questions of things that we may have forgotten to ask our doctor when we were there, or we suspect someone in our audience forgot to ask. So we're just going to fire these questions at you, Dr. Cozine, and <laughs> you'll get do it. it. I will tell you yeah. the first question that someone asked me recently when they find out what I do, they say, oh, find a doctor to ask them about ear infections. Yeah. <laughs> because they don't give out antibiotics for ear infections anymore. So let's start off talking about ear infections. You should just pass out amoxicillin like candy. But mm-hmm. it kind of tastes like candy when you're little. But And why don't we do that anymore? Well, you know, the problem was is that we were treating too many things. And now what is typically... Uh, what usually happens when a little kid has an ear infection, and first I'm going to talk about kids, then I'll talk about adults, is we know that the vast majority of what's called otitis media, which is infection of the middle ear, is caused by viral infections versus bacteria. So the antibiotic didn't do any good anyway, plus the fact it led to a lot of resistant bugs out there. Exactly. Because the bacteria are pretty smart. Okay. Right. And so now what we do is um, we use what's called a wait-and-see approach. And in most children, so thinking about kids roughly two and older, we recommend waiting 
48 to 72 hours because the main problem that kids have is pain. And if we can treat the pain, which the antibiotic doesn't make a difference with the pain anyways, they can get through the infection without needing antibiotics. So how do you treat ear infection pain? Ibuprofen is a great way to treat pain or Tylenol. We no longer use topical anesthetic drops, which were pretty popular even within the last um, three to five years, but now those have been removed from the market. Hmm. All right. What about HPV infections? I read the other day that half of American adults have an HPV infection below the waist. Absolutely. What is going on? It's incredibly common and very, very common. And so HPV is a virus, human papilloma virus that you might have heard of, which you clearly have. Um, it's the virus that causes cervical cancer and genital warts, and it's also been shown in a lot of emerging data to cause a lot of head and neck cancers. So there are several different strains of HPV, HPV, which means types. The most common ones that cause cancers are 16, 18, and then um, some of the 30s. And so... You know, what we do when we're looking for HPV is um, do a pap smear, and that's where we just look at the cells of the cervix, which is the bottom part of the uterus, and then we do um, what's called an HPV co-test. And if we see that the cervix looks normal and there's no HPV, then they are really very reassured that the patient does not have exposure to HPV. But if we see normal cells and exposure to HPV, then we look at that a little bit in a different way and examine the cells a little bit more closely. If you see cellular changes plus HPV, then that is um, often handled in yet another different way, which is a colposcopy, which we look more directly at the cells. But getting off track here a little bit, there's a lot of HPV in the community. Um, and so the it way it is sexually transmitted. It is, it is sexually transmitted, but not just genital to genital um, contact. So I make that very clear when I'm talking to teenagers and, and even adults, is you don't have to have sexual intercourse in order to be exposed to HPV. And so what I recommend is that Teenagers um, and actually kids be immunized against HPV. The immunization is approved starting in age nine, and we know that kids mount a better immune response the younger they are when they get it. And just recently, we found out that kids mount a beautiful immune response if they have only two HPV immunizations. So in teenagers younger than 15, they can have two immunizations separated by six months rather than the traditional three-shot series and have just as much protection against HPV. It is, in effect, a cancer vaccine. Absolutely. The problem is you need, you want to get the vaccine before you've had any sexual it, activity because right. once you get it, there's no treatment for it. But what about a male? I mean, you said that there was a test uh, that you could do on the woman when you're doing the pap smear right. to find it out, but mm-hmm. how do you find out if the male has? We don't we don't test to see if a man has HPV just because of what you're saying that about 50% of the population has you know is shown to have been exposed to the virus, and so what we recommend doing is immunize those boys to protect their female partners. But like I said, this is not just genital-genital contact, and it's not just penile-vaginal contact that can cause um, these spread of infections. And so we want to protect boys and girls. Yeah, but once the boys have it, the vaccine doesn't do any good. No, not exactly. You would still want to get the vaccine even if you've had exposure to HPV. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Because it protects against the highest risk strain. All right, what's next on your list? Well, you're the one who wrote them all down, but I think we have uh, legalizing marijuana. Yeah, because, you know, all around the country, different versions of yeah. the legalization levels of mm-hmm. marijuana. And so as a physician, and as Dr. Shai's pointed out, when you've got teenagers now that are going, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with marijuana, evidently. What is it that you're counseling patients about? I always like to tell people that this is complicated. Like all things, there's not a clear answer about um, what is what is the right thing to do. And I think a good framework for this discussion is thinking about alcohol. You know, there are people that have one or two drinks 
don't have a problem with alcohol. And then there are people that um, are alcoholics and really can't have alcohol at all. And what we know about marijuana is that similarly, people can have troubles with addiction with marijuana. One of the problems with marijuana is that we don't have a lot of studies about it. So we don't have a lot of clear data about what is the actual addiction information and what are the long-term effects of marijuana use. But certainly I've seen patients who have health issues related to their marijuana use. I've actually encounter patients who've had positive effects from their marijuana use. Oh, so, now what would that be? You mean like for pain control? Well, the, uh, self-reported positive effects. How's that? Yeah. Um, and <laughs> You mean I feel better when I'm I feel I'm better when I'm pot. using it. Yeah, okay. um, there are some people that do things like treat their anxiety with marijuana, which is not approved indication for medical marijuana. And so I think when we're talking about the medical marijuana discussion, it's really important to say that medical marijuana is only approved for very specific indications. And those are those indications that we have some scientific data that shows that there might be some benefit. All right, one more quick question, and that's about maternal pertussis vaccine. I didn't realize that women who are pregnant ought to get the, the whooping cough vaccine. We now recommend the whooping cough vaccine, which is Tdap, which is tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis in every single pregnancy, even if you just had it in your pregnancy that was two years ago. And the reason for that is not only to protect yourself against the whooping cough, which is pertussis, but to protect the baby. So after about week 28 of gestation, we recommend that mothers mm. get the immunization, and her antibody response will then protect her infant before that baby can get their it's, own pertussis it's an, Yeah, it's not a shot that a baby can get. Right. Well, you know, it's important to write your questions down. We did. Dr. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Cozine answered them all. Thanks yeah, so much thank for being you. with us. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, how a Mayo Clinic surgeon was able to reattach the hand of a young accident victim. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you may have heard the term on call. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, just thinking about it, my heart starts to go a little <laughs> faster. Well, it refers to when doctors uh, can respond quickly, get to the emergency room and treat patients in short order. And that's just what happened for one Mayo Clinic surgeon when a teenage patient was airlifted to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester with an arm that was severed just below the elbow. The question, what to do about it? Well, the answer, put it back on. Replantation is the surgical reattachment of a finger, hand, or arm that has been completely severed from the body. Reattachment in this case involved two bones as well as muscles, tendons, and blood vessels. Here to share the story is the physician who performed this limb-saving procedure, hand and plastic surgeon, Dr. Brian Carlson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Carlson. It's nice to meet you. Oh, Thank you for having me. Good to have you here. So take us back to the day. You you were on call. You weren't in the hospital, I assume, and they called you from the emergency room and they said, we got it. We have a problem. That's correct. Uh, they called me. Um, usually we get the calls an hour or so heads up, but this one came quickly. He had, uh, I think because they moved so quickly in the field where he was and got him. Uh, I got a call when he was at the airport in Rochester, and so I was able to quickly get to the hospital and see him as he was arriving and wheeling into the operating room. And, and what was the first thing you saw? I, I saw a, yo- a young man that was actually remarkably uh, brave and stoic and um, and managing. I saw him and his face before I even saw his his limb and his uh So he brought his, his arm injury. with him. He did bring his arm he with him. He didn't have to go back it and didn't, get no, that. No, no, no. And that was wise. His, uh, it was his stepmother, I believe, that uh, has some healthcare background and was mindful and kind of knew. She put it, uh, wrapped it in a bag and put it on ice, just like you're supposed to do. And uh, and it got here uh, right 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 there with him. 
how long from the time that he was injured and cut off his, was it hand or half of his it arm? Was, it was about uh, the middle to distal. Okay, just above his wrist. Yep, yep. So how long? How did he do it? He was yeah. he was uh, wor- doing some uh, woodworking in the in the yard with his uh, for his father, and uh, he was uh, cutting some uh, pieces of wood. You know, I can never quite exactly uh, put together in my head how it how these saws work. But his sleeve it was it was a cooler fall day. Sleeve got caught in the in the um, saw, pulled the arm in, and you know ha- it, these things happen so quickly. It was completely severed. I mean, there were he. It was, it was completely not severed. At all no, no, attached. no. Which is good and bad. I mean, <laughs> sometimes when they're uh, when they're partly attached, we struggle with the tissues that are attached, trying to save them. And sometimes when they're completely off, it makes things a little bit easier. We can we can adjust the the working the material we're what was with. the time frame between when that accident happened and when he was getting wheeled in and you were going to start um it i don't remember exactly but it was on the order of an, a couple of hours hmm. which is very quick i mean to imagine getting you know 911 first responders helicopter all of those things in motion yeah. now, i i know that there are sometimes you can replant a part put it back on and sometimes you can't how do you make that decision well the, um there, there's a lot of things that go into that decision, and probably you know m- more than we want to get into here. But patient factors, you know, is, uh, you know, is the patient mentally uh, able to participate in therapy, and are they? Is it something that they would want? So some patients, if you cut off your fingertip, you know, we can technically put a fingertip back on, but that may require a week in the hospital with perhaps uh, you know leech therapy which we don't need to get into but <laughs> it, it can be it can be very involved and uh and more trouble than it's worth uh, especially for someone who's a laborer or just wants to get back in the in the field or get back to work and perhaps even for a surgeon you know we know surgeons can do well without all their digits and, and there's a difference too isn't there between a relatively clean cut and a crush injury if That's all the it. tissues That's at it. the site yep. are, are, yep. are crushed it's more difficult to get it, everything to survive than if it's fairly clean cut that's exactly right and we were lucky in this situation it was a very clean cut um so yeah patient factors and then injury factors and then timing too timing is an important one if it's been a long time in transport the tissues can cannot be resuscitatable or revivable yeah. you but being said, on ice helps well yeah, on you ice said helps. the <laughs> family member had some medical training so new put it in a plastic bag put it on ice how long can a limb survive? How long is it viable for replantation? That's a that's a really good question. So it depends on the metabolic activity of the tissue. So um, a fingertip can last, believe it or not, several days oh of God. cold ischemia, <laughs> and even even I think the longest of warm ischemia. So something that's not ischemia even, means lo- no blood, no no, no blood circulation blood. to it, and um, so completely detached. Even with it not on ice, they, I think the longest is about a day and a half, thirty six hours. But that's because the tissue. The fingertip, the skin, and the fat doesn't have a lot of uh, metabolic activity. It's not burning a lot of energy, and uh, it's that process that causes the irreversible tissue destruction. But things like muscle, nerves, uh, do have a lot of metabolic activity, and there's a lot in the, in the hand itself, a lot of muscle tissue. So they, you do you have to act fast. So. For him, it's about six to eight hours of, uh, of ischemia. So how do you go about reattaching someone's hand? How does, how, where do you start? How does well, that work st- out? <laughs> there, are, there actually are algorithms for this. So you um, want to start with the bone uh, because if, if you start with the more delicate soft tissues, uh, it will be floppy and those will be uh, at risk for you know, falling coming off, apart. coming yeah. apart. So mm-hmm. if you stabilize the bone first, 
and then that that way you're working with a solid structure. Uh, I imagine just like framing a house. Um, and then, and then you can work with the soft tissues. And then, you so know, plate and screws to put the bone back plate together. Plate and screws to put the bone back together. And then, um, you know, more delicate, in, uh, you know, suture and things to put the nerves and blood vessels back together. You want to do the the get the vessels. You know, depending on how long it's been without circulation, you want to get that going probably after the bone or shortly after the bone. With him, uh, we had uh, we we had t- the luxury of time. So w- if it's bloodless field, it makes things easier to put together. Uh, so we put a lot of things together before we actually attach the blood vessels because of how you know how favorable the setup was, how clean of a cut it was, and. Now, how did he not bleed to death? I mean, the blood vessels in the mid forearm are pretty good size. That's a really good question, um, and. It's remarkable. I think when I, I've been taught that when when blood vessels are cut at 90 degrees transected, you know that they're mo- they're more able to spasm. Uh, Stop a, it! Really, <laughs> you guys? I feel like this is you're trying to trick me. I don't know, Doctor Shies. What do you, is that true? <laughs> so I mean, you think that the vessels they, clamp they're down able to on spasm? You know, with the with the transection versus a. Um, I know it's true. We see our arterial mm-hmm. injuries. You know, this is a, obviously the most severe you can get, but we see arterial injuries where the artery is completely wow. cut and it's missed you know that they, they say there's a lot of bleeding at the mm-hmm. scene and then by the time they get to the emergency department the bleeding has stopped you know they put pressure on it people are into that's an intuitive response and people don't usually have to be taught that but you know you put pressure on it and that uh, provides the body enough time to to clot it off and it doesn't it doesn't re-bleed how do you train for a surgery like this or how do you it doesn't happen every day. How often is this something that you have to do? Well, I mean, this is a unique injury, and it's, I, I do think it's one of a kind at, at this level, but we do reattach parts here. That, uh, we did look at our numbers not too long ago. It was about 50 uh, reattachment procedures per year or revascularization. There are similar mm-hmm. complexities, so they're usually looked at together. But every case is unique. Um, I, ironically, we do have a hand transplant program, and so we have been preparing for a hand transplant, and so this is a very typical level for a hand transplantation. So I actually had rehearsed this particular operation in in the on the uh, cadaver. He's and got he his practice. Yeah, he's got his practice. So yeah. this was a this was lucky for him. And he got his own hand both. back. Yeah. That was his transplant. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So a lot of this is done uh, with the with the microscope, and I know it's intricate. How many hours did it take? It went fairly well. Eight? Six hours, six Seven? eight hours. Eight? Yep. Perfect. Yep. And how's he doing? Uh, really well, really well. I mean, he, I couldn't have happened to a, a better person <laughs> as, really? as, as, as he's young. twisted as that might say. Sure. But yeah, he's young, he's brave, and he really didn't flinch. You know, a lot, a lot of people would, would have a really hard time, but he did therapy. So we, we, when we reattached the limb, we, he started therapy just in the, in the days after reattachment, and he, got, he stayed at the Ronald McDonald House and got, you know, several hours of therapy a day. Glad he's doing well, and he yeah. had a great doctor. Dr. Brian Carlson, plastic surgeon, hand surgeon, Mayo Clinic, Rochester. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. 
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.